Are you pregnant or a new parent looking to ensure a better postpartum experience? Or are you a birth worker looking to improve your postpartum care skills? Check out Thriving After Birth, an online self-paced course by me, midwife and educator Tanya Tringali. It's 10 and a half hours of video content featuring experts in lactation, mental health, pelvic floor health, pediatric sleep issues. You also get worksheets and a workbook, as well as options to have a one-on-one session with me. Sign up at motherwitmaternity.com slash thriving, and let's improve postpartum care together. Welcome to episode number two of the Motherwit podcast. Oh, and a gentle reminder that nothing we discuss on this show should ever be considered medical advice. Please speak to your local provider about anything that comes up in this show that resonates with you and your needs and your health care. So I have Sarah Lesko with me today. She's going to tell us a little bit about her journey. Uh, in full disclosure, Sarah and I worked together through the end of her pregnancy and through a good number of months of her postpartum. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that was like as well. But what's cool about having Sarah on the show is that Sarah is a therapist. Um, and so I actually think Sarah brings a really unique perspective from both being able to wear her provider hat and being a consumer who not in the too distant past had a baby. Uh, So uh, welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me, Tanya. This is really exciting. Thank you. All right. Um, So do me a favor, if you wouldn't mind, I know you, I know a lot about you, but for our audience, can you just tell us all a little bit about yourself? Sure. And I always find this question interesting because then we think about like, what are our identities? So first I think about my career. You're right. I'm a therapist, um, trained as a licensed marriage and family therapist, specializing in working with kiddos, the younger, the better. Um, I'm obviously a mama. My, my child Asher is a year. He's 14 months actually as of yesterday. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I've been married for uh, about three years to my partner, Josh, um, living in California and graduate of Mother Wit. So if you wouldn't mind, it's been a long time since now that you're reminding me that your baby's 14 months old, that makes your pregnancy even older. Give us a little bit of a background on what was going on in your pregnancy and how you were feeling about all of that kind of in the time before you and I met? Because you and I must have met, we probably connected in your early third trimester and really started working together in the later part of the third trimester, right? I think so. I am terrible with dates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully you don't need a perfect chronology. But yeah, it was it was towards the end of the pregnancy. I was a little bit late. I remember you trying to get me in quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we could have a touchdown before the birth. Got it. Uh, so I don't think we talked a ton about me getting pregnant. Um, and it's really fun for me to be on a podcast because I remember listening to Infertile AF mm-hmm. uh, and that was so helpful for me. I don't know if you know that podcast, but so helpful because I have infertility issues. You know very well that I have PCOS. Um, and so it was, it wasn't horrific for me trying to get pregnant, but it wasn't like you, you read about, right? Like, oh, you start trying and then that month you get pregnant. No, it was like a year process for me of going to the reproductive endocrinologist, 
you know, getting vaginal ultrasounds every other week. Not a lot of fun, but I did get pregnant. Um, the pregnancy was more or less smooth when it comes to my physical body, my structures, right? But I had to go off my antidepressants. I have a long-term issue with anxiety. Um, I went off birth control, which I've been on since 18 and I was 31 when I got pregnant. So it really messed with my system and messed with my emotions and my hormone levels. Uh, and so I was quite anxious during the pregnancy. And then around 29 weeks or so, I got gestational diabetes, which was, well, I, I was let, I was informed that I had GD, right? But likely I for sure had it before. So that, that piece was very stressful for me. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's pause there. I have a couple questions and I want to pick back up there as well. So can you just remind me, how long were you actually trying to get pregnant, like the good old fashioned way, not trying to think too much about it or involve the doctors before you actually went in for help? And then how long was it? Um, I was practically trying for zero days before I wanted to get help. Again, <laughs> anxiety. So I was convinced that it wasn't going to be easy. Um, luckily, my primary care doctor, my PCP, was, was pretty responsive to me. She was a good doctor. Um, and so about two or three months in when my cycles had been all wonky, she was like, okay, sure. Let's, let's, let's do a blood panel. And they found results that were indicative of PCOS. Now PCOS is, is a syndrome that it's, they basically have to rule out, rule it in. You know, it's not like you can just take a litmus test and it says yay or nay, you have it. So she didn't really know what she was doing, but she was willing to help me try and figure it out. And then I eventually got to the reproductive endocrinologist probably around four or five months of trying. And then it was a, yeah, then it was a year before we got pregnant. And, and, and just for our listeners, a year of trying is actually still considered normal, right? So I love that Sarah was able to give us that little extra tidbit that she seeked help early. And I know Sarah and that's Sarah's personality. And I think it's really important that we as healthcare providers um, can be malleable and not just say, no, this is the rule, right? Because so someone wrote some guidelines or a committee wrote some guidelines and we say, well, unless you have this, this or this, you need to try for a year before we're gonna help you. But that's not really helpful to people's psyche, right? So there's so many ways in which I almost wish I could go back in time and have known Sarah when she was in this place. Cause I think we would have had a good old time like going about it a little bit differently than maybe she did. But anyway, neither here nor there. I just wanted to make sure people know that a year of trying can be normal. What I don't remember also is, is that when you were diagnosed with PCOS or did you already know you had it? And that's what made you seek help quickly. No, I didn't know I had PCOS. So I've, I, I, it has been masked for a long time. I was on birth control continuously since 18. So I had no idea that I had it. And, and if they would have told me that I had to wait a year before trying, before getting help, I would have thrown a fit. But it, it's not like, I would just say, listen to your body because my body was telling me things were not normal. And, it, and I found out later I wasn't ovulating period. So there would have been zero possibility of me getting pregnant 
without intervention. And that's also the double whammy, right, of PCOS as one component, but coming off of long-term birth control can also come with a year of the body needing time to learn how to cycle again. So you kind of had two things um, that you were up against. So anyway, I'm really glad that people stepped in and were willing to work with you and help you get pregnant so that you didn't stretch it out to a place that made you crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So for for our listeners, a little bit of background, I'm sure this is going to come up many times in future podcasts. I also have PCOS. And so that's an area where Sarah and I really bonded because I, I, I take special interest in caring for people with PCOS and then to boot PCOS make someone's risk much higher of getting gestational diabetes and then diabetes later in life. So that's mm-hmm. something I pay a lot of attention to in my own body and in my own life. And I was watching Sarah unpack all of that during pregnancy, managing her gestational diabetes, but she was so super at, I don't think I've ever seen anyone be as <laughs> diligent and type A about it as she was. Yeah. How did that feel back then? Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible. It, and it took a toll. I still um, am struggling with loosening the reins when it comes to what I eat, when I eat, because when you get GD or when you're trying to manage diabetes, period, it's not just what you eat, it's how much you eat, what you pair it with, what you do after you eat. Are you taking a 20 minute walk? Are you sitting on your butt? Like it's a whole lifestyle change. And I was pretty obsessive about it. Yeah. And then we're not, we haven't even layered in yet the effects of lack of sleep and stress, which come hand in hand with new parenthood, right? So that's a whole other can of worms. And so when you're assessing these things, you can really make yourself crazy because you're like, well, okay, it was like that now, but if I can change this variable or that variable or this variable or that variable, you get a different outcome. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that is very crazy making for a lot of people who are working really hard at this. Yes. And factor in, this is my first child. So there's already, I'm already afraid I'm going to do everything wrong. So yeah, GD was tricky. Okay. So you just said something I think we should just go for. You were worried you were going to do something wrong. Is that what you were feeling through a lot of the pregnancy or early postpartum? Is that a feeling that comes up for you over and over again? Or was that specific to the diabetes? Oh, no, no, no. That's my life. <laughs> that's yeah. you. That's your, the way your anxiety manifests. It, it does. My anxiety is very much like there is a right answer. And if I don't find it and act now, they're gonna, there's going to be a hell of a problem. That's, that's what my brain tells me. Yeah. And now that you say that, I remember what was unique about our sessions was I almost felt like we were two scientists sitting down to bang out a project all the time. Like it was very organized. And even though you were managing anxiety that you didn't really bring that into our session, it came in, in the form of why we were having the session, but the session itself never felt the way sessions tend to feel when somebody has anxiety, which was such an interesting component of your anxiety. Cause it's almost like once you've acknowledged what the anxiety is and you get into your troubleshooting way, you're just like, you're all about solving that problem. And you're so level-headed about it. Yes. Yeah. I was talking with a coworker of mine and I was saying that, um, I was talking about my anxiety and handling situations at work because I, I, right now I manage other therapists. I don't work a ton with clients. I manage a program with two programs. And he was like, you know, let's go. I've never seen you sweat, but 
over-functioning yes. is a form of anxiety. Absolutely. hundred percent. And I think people need to hear that because it is, I think, one of the hidden silent secret symptoms of postpartum anxiety that people don't realize, kind of like equivalent to the hidden uh, symptom of depression being rage. Mm-hmm. Those are the two things people don't know about depression and about anxiety that, that still blow my mind. And I have to consciously remind myself that that's what these things are. Mm-hmm. Super interesting yeah. to me anyway. <laughs> um, now, um, I want to go back a little bit and ask you if you can remember how you felt about your care, your local care team during pregnancy. Um. Well, getting pregnant, I loved my team. I loved my RE. Um, my, my doctor, my OB was new to me. I uh, hadn't met her until I got pregnant and I did not, I, know, I don't know if you remember, I did not like her. I just felt, I mean, it's managed care 101. I just felt like she would rush in. She would speak from a script and then she would ask if I had any questions, but not really have time for my questions. Mm-hmm. And then I'd be out the door. Yeah. So I kind of do remember that now that you say it, because I feel like one of the things we did was organize your most important topics or questions for the next visit so that you could achieve a goal. Again, it was all very goal oriented, but we were trying to figure out how you could be your most effective advocate. Like we all know, you know how to advocate for yourself, but man, we're up against a system that will push even the best advocator (laughs) into a place where they find they can't succeed because if the time isn't there, well, your hands are already tied before you even deal with interpersonal dynamics. You know what I mean? Right. You know, and I felt for her. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with her as a person, but she's not able to be an effective doctor. Uh, Same reason why, like, I won't go to Kaiser as a therapist because it's not set up for me to provide adequate therapy. It's the same thing. But I do remember that I purposefully used our sessions, you and me, to answer as many questions as I could. And the ones that you couldn't, those were the only ones that I brought up with her. Exactly. And a lot of the questions that I couldn't answer, it was really more a question of ethics, right? It was like, this is my feeling on this. This is how I think we should manage it, but I'm not your boots on the ground local provider and I'm not going to step on those toes, right? So it was like, let's look at what all the options are, what sits right with you and how can you bring that thought back while you're asking that question so that you're simultaneously advocating for yourself while getting her point of view on something. So. Mm-hmm. And I think that came up around like timing of delivery, right? Because that's a big yeah. thing with gestational diabetes is kind of the debate about when to deliver. That's like a whole other episode. <laughs> so I won't take yeah. us t- terribly far down that path, but that is induction comes up for me when I'm providing postpartum care. Cause you know, as we're discussing my postpartum care starts during pregnancy for a reason, right? You're your birth experience directly relates to your postpartum experience. We cannot separate the two. And so for people, some people are more engaged with me on the pregnancy journey or they're with me longer. And so we get into that groove. But even when most of that prep is focused on postpartum, it's sad, but almost everybody ends up coming to me saying, uh, my provider just kind of threw a bomb at me and is suggesting I need to be induced. 
And whether it's for a valid reason, a potentially valid reason or a not valid reason, this is a discussion I have with a lot of people is, you know, how to, how to navigate the discussions around induction when you feel, you know, a, like maybe you don't know for sure all the reasons that you should or shouldn't be induced, or you just don't know how to advocate for yourself in that way. Cause it's tough. And you don't know. I mean, I am somebody who, because of my background, I know how to read research studies. I know how to glean information from those. So, you know, you sent me um, podcasts. Um, I think either you sent me research studies or I found them through the podcast, through their website. And I, and I read up on induction at 39 weeks versus 41. You know, I read up on all of it, but you don't know what the right answer is. And it's so hard. Right. And so, so much of the work we do is around how to talk about risks and benefits, because there's no way to make a medical decision or walk through life or live or die without taking a set of risks and benefits. And so each individual has to look at, well, what are my risks and benefits if I do this versus this and which sits best with me? And that's what I find where we're lacking in our medical system. And I call out OBs a little bit more than midwives and other providers in this instance, because they tend to be a little more um, authoritative in their approach. Yeah, I felt bullied. I felt bullied to get an induction. What do you think shifted in terms of your local healthcare from when you were pregnant to what it was like to be postpartum? Um, I wish I could say that it was a big adjustment in the sense that, you know, you go from seeing the doctor at the end weekly, right? They want to see you often, um, to just that six week visit, but I had you. So, and I didn't like my OB. So for me, it really, it wasn't jarring. Got it. But if you hadn't set up this extra layer of support, you're saying you would have gone from being seen every week to you had, um, I think what I'm hearing you say is you had no contact until six weeks. Yeah, they did not call and check up on me. None of that. Um, you know, I, I did give birth vaginally. I didn't have a C-section, so there wasn't that complication. Um, I did like my, my kiddo's pediatrician and we saw him early on, a couple of times early on. So that felt helpful. But I was terrified the whole time that I was postpartum, right? Like I'm still a little terrified, but not as bad. But keeping that kid alive when we had feeding issues, we had we had a whole bunch of stuff that I'm sure you know we might touch on. But um, yeah, if I hadn't had you and I hadn't had my OB to check in with, um, I think I would have been much worse off. Okay. So what made you set up this extra layer of support? Like, what did you think before it all went down, the reason for it was? And then we can talk about like what the reality turned out to be, the things you didn't expect that happened, but like, what made you do it? Because so few people do this. Add in the layer of, yes, of adding life. the layer, extra layer of support. And I don't even mean just me and what I do. That's kind of different and not common, but you know, there are postpartum doulas, there are baby nurses, there are all these things that are more common. They might not be 
quite common, but they're certainly more common than this wacky thing this virtual midwife is doing. Um, but what made you set up an extra layer of support and specifically what spoke to you about this? Um, well, to be honest, and it's, I, I, I'm always a little embarrassed. Like I found you on Instagram. I was following like a labor nurse, just trying to get tips on what to do, because as women, it's so sad within our community. And I'm, I'm talking about like Western, uh, the Western culture, but we don't talk about birth. We don't pass along knowledge. I wasn't there watching my mom breastfeed my sister and then watching my nieces. Like I have a deficit of knowledge when it comes to birth, early child care, you know, like all of that stuff is just born. We don't talk about it. Um, so that's what I was doing on Instagram. And I saw you or I saw Pebble and I went, oh, well, that makes sense. Um, as a therapist, I have gained this um, belief that we only need therapy because our communities are fractured in a way they never have been in the past. You know, you used to live in small communities where neighbors knew each other. You would have the village elders. You would have, if you're religious, you might have a pastor or a priest to go to for big issues. Um, you know, you have your family, you have your extended family, you have your confidence, so you don't need a therapist. But when our society started getting more and more fractured, you know, I was in the Bay Area when I was working with you. So huge, so many people. I'm so isolated because I moved there from, you know, my hometown in Southern California. Like, I didn't have the support and I knew that I needed it. I also have chosen a husband who, um, helps me stay very grounded um, and lean away from my intense emotions. He doesn't have a ton of emotions, which means that he doesn't get it when I do. And he can help me with certain pieces, but holding me is something he's learning to do more and more. So I needed, um, I knew I needed somebody else to join my team. Mm. So interesting. And did you think about like local postpartum doulas or had, was that not on your radar? Did it not speak to you the same way? I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't, I barely knew that doulas were a thing. And my husband was just like, no, we're not getting a doula. We're not getting it. So like, I didn't know it was a thing. And that's why, you know, it was just luck that I came across Pebble and I was like, okay, like they, they have a free meet and greet. And then I met you and I was like, yes, we're doing this. I told my husband, I was like, it's all, you know, it's, it's an investment. And he was like, sure, do it. You need the support. But it was yeah, He seemed so on board with this. And I think it makes sense, right? He was a little like, no, we're not doing that when it came to having a stranger in the house. But it was like, you want a stranger on your computer? Okay. <laughs> I, I think it was more, you have the title of midwife versus doula it, it, there is a stigma mm -hmm. I, I don't need to tell you that um when it comes to women's care and what we call certain professions um but it all amounts to the same thing I needed somebody to support me ideally somebody with a lot of experience with background uh and he wanted that for me too yeah but so so specifically what was it that you thought you needed support in or was it really kind of global and you were like I don't know what I'm getting into I don't even know what I need or why I need it I just know I need it 
that one. Yeah. I, I, I knew enough to know that there's only so much you can prepare. I knew that it was going to be a huge shift. Um, although in retrospect, it was, it was bigger than I could have expected. Yeah. You know what? I'm 21 years postpartum and I'm still struck sometimes <laughs> by what an immense life transition this was. And, you know, we, many of us will say postpartum is forever. Um, and it is, you know, and, and revisiting that journey. Sometimes I look back and I'm like, I don't even know how I did it now. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know how it all happened. It's like a big old blur. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And I, you know, I was really, I was a young mom and I didn't, these things didn't exist in my world either. So I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. And I look at, you know, women, women these days, I hate to say that the way I just said that, but like women these days, I tend to take care of women who are older when they have their first babies. And I think of them as more emotionally prepared. And in some ways they are, but in other ways, it really throws them for a loop too. And so it's really interesting watching people have babies who are maybe in their early twenties versus people in their thirties or be it early thirties or late thirties. It's two vastly different experiences, right? Like moms in their thirties have seemingly endless patience for babies. That's something I've seen over and over again, but moms in their twenties are kind of like lost in a completely, it's just totally different apples and oranges. Okay. So, um, since you came into this, not knowing what it was you needed, you just knew that there were going to be needs. Can you articulate what some of the surprises were? Like what, if you're able to kind of game out the timeline a little bit, like picture that you have this newborn in your arms, maybe you're still in the hospital, maybe it's the day you got home. Like, what is the first thing that you can remember that struck you as like, holy crap, this is huge. And here's this thing. And I don't even know where to begin. Um, yeah, I remember I didn't know that newborns sleep so much, like you have to rouse them to feed. Um, and sure, I, I'm sure I texted you early on, like, is this normal? Um, but I think as many parents do, I had such a fear of him, of Asher not uh, regaining his birth weight, not growing. And he had... Um, significant issues with breastfeeding and that continued until until I eventually stopped earlier than I had planned for so that was the main issue um, that I worked with he ended up being diagnosed with a tongue tie and um, and a lip tie and dysphagia which is um, an impairment in the suck swallow breathe pattern um, and so we went on quite a journey with breastfeeding, feeding specialists, doctor's appointments, ENTs. Yeah. Yeah. And if I recall, you had an amazing milk supply. Is that, am I remembering this correctly? <laughs> yes. I had a very, I had an oversupply in one breast. It really was like, <laughs> it really is like those like cartoons. One boob was like twice as big as the other, but I was, I was terrified of not producing enough. That wasn't the issue. Yeah, no, I remember. Well, the reason I remember that though is because it is so rare to have a baby that has legitimate feeding issues and a mom who's dealing with oversupply despite it. Like you're always managing keeping up the milk supply when there's a lot of issues going on in the early days. And yours was like just the opposite. It was so crazy. Um, yeah, I was pumping. Yeah, yeah. You were like the master pumper. You figured that piece out really quickly. I'm not saying you enjoyed every minute of that, but zero <laughs> minutes of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, 
feeding issues, birth weight. So, okay, you bring up some interesting points, right? Um, I think one of the things that happens early on in the really early postpartum period and where we now shift from relying on our OB to relying on a pediatrician. And for most people having their first baby, they don't know this pediatrician well at all. Maybe they met once, but that's it. And all of a sudden you've got all these goals around breastfeeding and the way you thought it was going to look. And a pediatrician kind of swoops in with their own ideas. And that tends to throw people for a really big loop. Um, and so I find myself kind of, once again, playing this middle middleman where I'm trying to give you accurate information, not build on the fear mongering that is sometimes coming from the other side, right? So like you, the first thing you said was, I didn't know babies slept so much and that you had to work so hard to get them to feed. So on one hand, the, the fact that our care drops off the most massive cliff from pregnancy to postpartum seems so unreasonable to me. When there's all these things that we don't spend any time during pregnancy educating somebody about, and then we're not there for them. So while I didn't burden you in your final weeks of pregnancy with all these details, right? I knew that I would just be right there when push came to shove and I needed to make sure that you knew how often is it okay to go between feeds? When do I need to wake the baby? How do I know the baby had enough? Counting peas and poops, like all the things, right? Whereas yeah. most people are kind of completely on their own until that first pediatrician's visit, which depending mm -hmm. on what day you're discharged can be up to a week. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. And you, you would respond often like a minute later and I didn't expect a minute later, but it, it definitely was no more than a couple of hours. Yeah. I mean, I tell people that they need to give me up to four hours to respond because partly because it's important to me that I never get confused with what could be seen as an emergency service. Right. It's so important to me. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I'm somebody who's lived more of my life with a phone attached to my hip being on call. And so my phone is like literally always against my body. So I don't really miss anything. So unless I'm in a session with someone, I return calls quickly. Um, yeah. You know, it just, it is what it is. And I, I've come to see my role as taking on all the little questions that nobody else will take on and taking all the calls that you would never call your OB about, whether it's because you know they don't have the answers or because you don't think that it's okay, that you think you can only call with emergencies, which is mostly true because they can't really answer the easy questions anyway, right? You have to build a team for that. And that team should be midwives, doulas, lactation consultants, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem is if you don't have that team, one of my behavioral patterns when I'm anxious about something is to spend hours searching for the answer in research studies or Google or something and just hyping myself up and hyping myself up. Yeah. And so my husband would remind me, Sarah, you built a team, you have Tanya, text Tanya the question and then leave it alone. Yeah. And so yeah. that really helps with, with my anxiety. Well, that's why I try to drag husbands into at least those first couple visits, right? Because I know that it's got to be hard for them to watch you go down the rabbit hole. And so I probably said this to him, I can't swear to it, but I say it to almost everybody like, Hey, if you see her doing this, or she says, I wonder, blah, blah, blah. You just say, great question. Call Tanya <laughs> because I don't want you on Google. I want you to be sleeping or feeding your baby or Googling at your baby or whatever it is that needs to be happening, but not like researching on Google at this point. It's just not the right answer. <laughs> right. Right. Okay, so 
tell me, remind me what happened with your mental health journey. Um, because again, because you always came to me with this like clear agenda, this is what we're talking about today. And this is what I need to learn. And this is what we need to tackle. I wouldn't feel it as much, but I remember when you, when you really came to me and you were ready to start re-exploring what it would look like to manage your mental health differently. Yeah. It's really interesting, um, to hear your feedback that I don't present as anxious uh, which I shared with you is, is not necessarily a new, um, not new feedback for me, but looking back on the first three, four, five months after Asher's birth, I was the most anxious I've ever been. Mm. And, you know, I have an anxiety disorder. I I'm anxious. <laughs> I have a temperament that is just anxious and I work on accepting that. That's just the way my brain is built. Mm -hmm. But I was in a very big hole. Um, I, I have to rewind, right? Like, so diagnosed with depression at 18, started taking antidepressants, but really what those treated was anxiety, you know? So I realized I had an anxiety disorder then. Um, and then I took medication off and on, mostly on until 31 when I was getting pregnant and there's very little research on whether it impacts the baby or not in utero. So we just chose to go off of it. So I knew I was predisposed to postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. And I ended up being diagnosed with both. Um, but the anxiety was what the biggest problem was. Um, for me, it was, you know, they tell you postpartum, you can get weepy. I was crying so often. Yeah. I was not sleeping. So, you know, you, you told us early on, like, you are not going to get eight hours of sleep um, uninterrupted, for sure, no. But try to sleep eight hours in every 24-hour period. Yeah. I could not nap my, my hormones, my serotonin levels were so off that I couldn't nap. I couldn't sleep at night. And what I found, what I understood after I went and saw a psychiatrist was you, your hormones are hormones aren't recycling then. So you're just kind of like building up anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. If you're not sleeping, it's a, you know, self-perpetuating cycle. Um, I was obsessing over everything and there was a lot to obsess over. Asher was, um, he has very big feelings. He wasn't, I, and I think that the, the feeding issues too were causing him silent reflex. So he was in pain and he just naturally is a kid that has big feelings and takes a while to recover from them. That's a very nice way of saying he cried all the time we were walking him all the time. We were dancing with him in the garage. So I, there was no way I wasn't going to get bad postpartum anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you also, I, and you're a therapist, so you, you might actually have a better answer to this question. One of the things I struggle with, and I, I've literally chalked it up to semantics because it, I need to oversimplify this because I don't believe it actually matters, but I'm waiting to see what you'll say. You are somebody who had anxiety before pregnancy. You chose to come off your meds, totally cool. 
you eventually got back on and got yourself back into a better place. We then called it postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression. And it's kind of like, I always wonder, well, why do we use that terminology when it's someone's existing anxiety or someone's existing depression? You know, I know that it's a different lived experience because it's tied to what's happening in our lives as new parents. And it's the, technically the perinatal period. But what the way I looked at it, I guess, to simplify for myself was simply that you have anxiety. We're going, it is unlikely that we're going to get through this trying time. And suddenly you're going to come out of this trying time and no longer have anxiety. Oh, yes. Oh yes. Um, I haven't spent too much time thinking about why is there such a firm line between uh, PPD, PPA, um, and pre-existing conditions. My first thought was, oh, it's BS, right? That there is a division there. My second thought is maybe it's so providers will keep a closer eye on the postpartum parent, mm-hmm. right? Because of the risk, right? There is more of a risk with PPD, PPA. And this is just, this is just be, me speaking anecdotally. I haven't read research on it, but you know, you have an infant, you are incredibly sleep deprived. Things can happen. You know, my, my psychiatrist would ask me um, every visit, now, are you thinking of course she would ask, am I, am I thinking about harming myself or harming the child, which was luckily never, uh, was never a yes. But she would also ask me, are you thinking of escaping? Mm. Mm. That, that was very interesting. And so that's a question you would only ask a postpartum parent as opposed to somebody with just anxiety. No, you know, if I saw a psychiatrist now, they wouldn't ask me, are you thinking of escaping your life? What, well, maybe still because Asha has big feelings, but. nobody asked me that before so okay you you you, as you started to answer that question I had a whole stream of thought that came in at that same time and I think our thoughts were the same we just articulate them differently for me this discussion is more the and this is why I like don't stress out about the labels like it's all the same thing in my mind what what I want for people is for them to get support often from somebody who has specific training for the perinatal period. And it sounds like your psychiatrist had some degree of that, if not a lot. That's such a beautiful question. It's such a beautiful question. It's hard though, Tanya, and I don't have to tell you this, but the, that psychiatrist was a, is a leading specialist in the field. She cost a lot of money and I was able to get to her. I was able to find her because I'm a therapist, Yeah. right? And I knew a therapist who worked with her at they there's a a mom's program at El Camino Hospital and I think Los Gatos San Jose or something that focuses on postpartum women um very women with very significant postpartum mental health issues but I like I said I was only able to get to her because I know somebody and because I can afford it Well, you know, while we're talking about resources, I want to point out two. One that is just particularly interesting and will be interesting to people who live in and around the New York City area and one that's national or even international. Um, And so the New York City one is the Motherhood Center. Have you heard of the Motherhood Center? 
I might have. You got to Google this. It's pretty profound. I mean, they're a day treatment center for yeah. perinatal period. It's, it's amazing. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to get into it too much, but they're awesome. And they also do all these free trainings for healthcare providers. And I attend like practically every single one of them because so much of my work is around mental health. And I'm constantly wearing my little tiny therapist hat, even though I'm not a therapist. Uh, but the other resource that I want to make sure everybody listening knows about is called, is called, <clears throat> excuse me, postpartum support international. Um, and the web address couldn't be easier. It's postpartum.net. And they are an incredible largely free resource. So, I mean, there's a hotline you can call. There's a hotline for your healthcare provider to call. There are state chapter leaders and local chapter leaders who can guide you towards therapists who have this special training towards group therapy. I mean, there's just such great things out there. And, and one positive of COVID, because I'm somebody who, even though COVID sucks, I have found some beautiful things that have come out of it in terms of how people have learned to manage postpartum and how we seek care. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of, of other things, I guess I have two more questions for you as we wrap up. And then I have one fun little thing that I want to engage you in. Um, I am curious to hear from a therapist who has gone through my program. Why do you think this works, right? Because I'm not a therapist and yet almost everybody speaks to the way it helped them with their mental health, right? Like that's such a big outcome of this work. And I've gotten so deeply invested in mental health and I never saw that for myself. Um, but this is definitely an adjunct somehow to mental health resources and services. I love that you're posing that question to me because I, um, I am working, I don't know, the last couple of years I've been working towards a specialty in attachment. And I see things a lot through a mother, child, or a parent, child lens. Um, you know, when you look at, when you see a kid on the playground, a young kid with a parent, a naturally timid one like Asher is, he will take a couple steps, look back at mommy, see that mommy's still there, and then he will take another couple steps, right, and keep doing that because he needs that, he needs that anchor, okay, and that's what you do especially for first-time parents or for parents who are um, trying to explore what it's going to be like to have two kids or have twins or whatever it is, we need to be held because we're scared, okay? So even though I didn't know what I needed, I knew that I needed somebody to hold my hand, somebody that could anchor me, somebody that could answer my questions or point me in the right direction if she couldn't answer my questions. And that's what you did. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I'm really trying to figure out how to say what I do concisely. And that's sort of in the strangest way what led to starting this podcast. But clearly it takes a whole podcast episode to, <laughs> to unpack it. So I don't think I'm getting anywhere. Um, okay, one more question before my weird little thing I wanted to run by you. Um, so any thoughts about virtual care? And you can wear your healthcare provider hat or you can wear your consumer cat hat. Um, you can wear a cat too if you want, but I think the hat would be better. <laughs> I'm not a cat person, so we'll pass on Me that. Neither. Um, yes, I have a lot of thoughts, both as a consumer and as a provider. Um, in my field, it, some folks did telehealth video, right? 
um, but most providers wouldn't touch it. Uh, and previously before the pandemic, I wouldn't have touched it. I would do phone sessions here and there, but really we wanted in person. I would never have considered your service before the pandemic. And you were um, one of the most crucial parts to my success as, as a new mom, as a parent. So I'm so lucky that I opened the door. I think there are drawbacks to video, especially when it comes to ther therapy. There's a magic that happens when you're sitting with somebody, there's an energy, there are things that a therapist can use, nonverbal things, just like proximity, um, just my breathing pattern that they're not gonna translate as well, nearly as well over video. So I think you lose some efficacy in therapy. Um, but I think the piece that is awesome about it that also translates to your work is the amount of folks that you are going to reach that you wouldn't be able to reach without video. You and I wouldn't have a relationship. There's no way. Yeah. Um, and I can't picture, you know, there, there are other folks doing your work. I'm sure not many, but it was you. It wasn't just the service you provide. It was you and who you are. So I think that is more important mm -hmm. than the modality. Yeah, it's so interesting to listen to you talk about it because, you know, I have so many midwife friends who when the pandemic hit, they were so unhappy about doing virtual care. And I was so getting in the groove of it and loving it and feeling so present and feeling like there was so much energy flowing between me and my virtual clients. And I still feel that today. And I'm like, I just don't see what the problem is. <laughs> and it's been so interesting. And so it's actually like kind of you turned on me in some way. And I'm like, do I like virtual because there's something wrong with me and I don't want to see real people anymore? Like, what, what? <laughs> like what is going on there? It's pretty crazy. Um, but no, it's nice to hear your points of view on virtual care since you kind of have both experiences. And I do, th I think it's, it's a big cultural shift, no doubt. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm so happy that we have this tool for people now. Yeah. All right, so here's my little, thing I wanted to throw by you at the end that I wasn't going to warn you about at all. Um, I kind of foresee this as a future segment or an ongoing segment, and it might end up living kind of separately from the interview. But because you're a healthcare person too, I think I'm going to give it a go um, and do my first version of this live with you. So, okay. When I was a kid, there was on the local news station, and there probably still is on every local news station this thing. I haven't seen local news in I don't know how long, but like when I was a kid, I would watch the news and there would be like this little segment called Shame on You. And I, I feel like there was like even a little jingle, right? It was like Shame on You or something stupid like that. But it was like the business owner who did something bad and didn't like give a refund or whatever it was, but they tattled on someone in the community who did something bad on the local mm -hmm. news. And I got this idea recently because a client similar to you, like came back to me after a little bit of having finished the program and she just needed a head check and to be checked in on some things. <clears throat> and I mean, what I'm about to say is not novel or new. And I've had this happen a hundred times, but for some reason it gave me this idea, probably because I was in the headspace of starting this podcast. Um, but anyway, someone comes back to me and she mentions that she'd gone to her primary and gotten some labs done that I suggested she get done. 
And um, so she says to me, so I got those labs done and the doctor put them in my portal. No one ever called me about them. It looks like there's some things abnormal. Um, and you know, I, I don't, I don't really know. And I was like, well, send them to me. I'm happy to look them over and explain them. Like, that's one of the things I do. I make sure I explain everything to everyone. And I get the labs back and there are some significant abnormalities. And I was like, I into a rage. And this is what happens to me, right? I get like in a rage and so angry at the way our healthcare system works. How dare this person put labs in someone's box and not explain them, not call nothing. I find it so upsetting that yes. this happens. And I know it happens every single day. I've probably been that person and done it too when I was seeing 40 patients a day, right? It's, it's not a great life or, or way to be and you can't be your best self under those circumstances. But it made me so mad that I, I thought of that segment from when I was a child called Shame on You. And I was like, I would like on every episode of this podcast to highlight something that is done in the medical world that is not okay. Not because I need to shame an individual, but because I need to bring awareness to an idea. And I think there are just thousands of examples like this. And this is just one little tiny one that happens all the time. So that is my shame on you segment, mm -hmm. so to speak. And since you are both consumer and healthcare provider, I will ask you if you have an example from either side that you would like to share. Oh, I do. I do. I'm trying to pick which one I want to share. I think um, the one that I still... I'm still upset about. I'm still upset about. Okay, are you wearing your consumer hat or your therapist hat? Consumer hat. Okay. Yep. So I get my test results. So for those listening that haven't done their testing for gestational diabetes yet, you know, you get tested and then I failed that one. And then you have to do another test and these are horrible tests like you drink horrible stuff you have to wait around for hours and then take your blood like it's not fun so I'm terrified right and I don't pass that one obviously y'all know I got GD um and then I'm sitting there waiting okay so my doctor emails me fairly quickly and is like you failed it and then I'm waiting and then I'm waiting and then I'm waiting and then I'm waiting it's well what the f do I do like, you can't tell me that I have this disorder that can potentially cause health issues to my child and then just leave me hanging. So what had happened was the clinic that I was at, the OB clinic that I was at, contracted with um, another clinic that would provide a nutritionist or a dietitian, diabetes education, that type of thing. Well, they were impacted. So they, I don't even think they reached out to me. I was just on some list. And when I reached out to them, they said, okay, well, we can fit you in in a couple of weeks, which is absurd. It's completely absurd. Again, you're telling me whatever I put into my body, I am potentially harming my child. And I have to wait weeks to figure out how to fix this problem. I ended up finding my own, because I am who I am, I found my own dietitian, certified diabetes educator who specializes in PCOS and um, perinatal. And she 
she called me within a day and said she was appalled that they would have made me wait that long, that she tries to get a hold of people the day of diagnosis and get started, mm -hmm. right? I, I ended up not needing insulin. It was diet and exercise controlled, but for them to leave me hanging for two to three weeks was horrible. And my doctor just sat by, I said, like, this is what they're saying. She just said, there's nothing I can do about it. And she didn't provide you with some decent guidance herself. I mean, this is in her wheelhouse. I, as a midwife, provide this guidance every day. I don't need a dietitian to do it for me. I'm not saying that's not helpful to have help. No, I was in the place of educating my OB about what gestational diabetes is and how you treat it. She, all she said was go to this website, which was like, um, just, I think the American diabetic association, um, and just look at the website. Um, but I remember later on, she, she asked me the question of, uh, she needed to prescribe my, um, continuous glucose monitor. I chose to get one of those instead of just pricking my finger, although I did that too, because I'm so anxious. Um, but she needed to prescribe that. And she said to me, well, did you get your pump? And I had to explain to her, oh, no. no, I'm not on insulin. A pump is, is, you know, <laughs> it was, it was so frustrating. Oh my goodness. Well, I am glad you chose that story in particular because I would have been sad if it didn't come up in this episode and I know we need to wrap it up. Um, but I did want to mention that you had the continuous glucose monitor because I think that might be when I fell in love. Like I was so <laughs> proud of you and I was so happy that you'd found the person that you found because I'm a huge fan of CGMs. Anyone who's been on my Instagram knows I chat about it from time to time again. Um, you know, because I too have polycystic ovarian syndrome and I have diabetes on both sides of my family and I'm neurotic about trying to understand glucose fluctuations and all this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And I had never worked with a pregnant person with a glucose monitor on, but I knew that it was brilliant. And I believe, and I will now be forever recorded on this podcast. I do believe that in some unknown number of years, let's call it 10, this will be how we take care of all people with diabetes. I'm just waiting for it, just yep. waiting for it because it's novel. It's amazing when you can know your readings all the time, you can really be mindful of the work you're doing. And yes, you could make yourself crazy, but more, <laughs> more often than not, it's just really valuable information. And also, and I will promise to get off my soapbox immediately after this last statement, I believe we diagnose, diagnose diabetes wrong at this time. By the time we can diagnose diabetes, that person has already largely lost their window of opportunity to be better, to prevent, I should say. Um, and I do believe that CGMs are the key to actual prevention, to catching someone before we would ever use the stupid phrase pre-diabetes, right? Like before we get into these little windows and then people are like, no, I'm fine. I don't have diabetes. I just have pre-diabetes. No, no, no. You still have something going on here. And then we have to look at insulin resistance and understand all of these other variables that are super complex. I just think it's going to get so much better. And it's one of the things I'm actually excited about um, in medicine in general and in, you know, relation to gestational diabetes. So you were like novel and I loved mm -hmm. that. And Sarah, I have loved revisiting our time together today. And I, I can't thank you enough for um, taking this time and 
sharing so thoughtfully uh, your story with me and all these listeners, strangers, uh, who will hopefully become part of our larger community. I, I'm so happy to do it. Thank you so much. Kiss your family for me. And um, I will say your, your latest Instagram photo, I almost peed myself. <laughs> <laughs> You have Asher holding the sign that said baby for sale. That was a yep. good one. <laughs> yeah. And the next day we cut a mohawk into his hair and my mom was appalled. So I'll have to read the photo. I love it. Well, keep bringing the humor. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. everyone, it's me, Tanya, your host here at the Motherwit Podcast. You know I sometimes invite my clients on the show to talk about their birth stories and postpartum experiences, but I want to tell you a little bit more about what those clients and I actually do together. I started Motherwit to help people in the perinatal period achieve their health and wellness goals. That means whether you're hoping to conceive and struggling with high blood pressure or high blood sugar, or you're having trouble managing anxiety or depression in the postpartum period, or maybe you just need support and advocacy between prenatal or postpartum visits, I can help. Get a discount on your first consultation with me at motherwitmaternity.com using the code FIRSTCONSULT10% OFF. That's one zero percent symbol, all one word. I'm looking forward to working with you and maybe having you on the show too.